0: Even you know, before we really begin, I do want to mention, just to highlight for you, our prayer meeting. We meet every Sunday morning at 8.45. We've really been dedicating the last two weeks, these next two weeks, really to, to praying for God's blessing upon the church. Praying for the things that we really need. So I invite you to come to that. So, time just these next two weeks even are going to be a little bit different than we normally have. So we just plead for God to be gracious to us. But each Sunday as we've been walking through this, we have seen the, the story of the church in Colossae. Remember, Paul was in prison and uh, he was there and he heard from his friend Epaphras, who was a fellow prisoner, probably in jail also for preaching the gospel. And he heard about these people in Colossae and he heard some good things about the church in Colossae. People had received the gospel, they'd come to believe in Christ and it had become growing in their faith. But there are some difficulties as well and Paul heard of some of these difficulties as well. These people were being bombarded on, on all sides by false views of Christ and thus by false views then of salvation and what salvation is. And rather than going into all the details of all the different heresies going on in Colossae, Paul simply said, let me tell you about Jesus and let me tell you the work that Jesus did. Because when you truly grasp who Jesus is, and the work that He has done, you'll be able to stand firm against even the strongest of opposition. That's what Paul's argument was and that's what we will argue again this morning. You need to understand who Christ is and what Christ has done. Well, let's look at Colossians chapter 1. My text this morning is verses 19-23. through 23. But to catch the context, we need to begin in verse 15. It says, "...He is the image of the invisible God." talking of Jesus, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you, Colossians, were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds... Yet He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Well, have you ever been to the ocean? And watch the waves come in. You see, the first wave kind of comes in and it comes upon the shore and then it goes out and another wave comes in. And there's sometimes where the wave doesn't even get out before the next wave comes crashing in upon the the seaside, the shore shore there. Well, that's what took place here in Colossians chapter 1 is that we see Paul describing who Jesus is and and wave upon wave upon wave he's coming and talking about who Christ is. Verse 15, He's the image of the invisible God. We saw last week that that meant that He is God Himself. He's the firstborn of all creation. That means that He is the highest of any being ever to walk on the planet. says in verse 16 that He was the Creator. By Him all things were created. Things in the heaven and things upon the earth, visible and invisible, all things were created by Him, through Him, and for Him. He's the purpose of it all. All things have been created for Him. In verse 17, we see that He was the origin of the universe because He was before all things. He's the sustainer of the universe because in Him all things hold together. He's the head of the church. We obtain our marching orders from Jesus. He's the firstborn from the dead, the greatest of all who ever were and ever will be resurrected from the dead. These ways keep on crashing in upon us and they are summarized for us here in verse 19. It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. The best way to understand here verse 19 is to go over to chapter 2 verse 9. Jesus, uses this fullness and dwelling in Jesus and it says in Him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In other words, the, the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Jesus. The incarnation doesn't take away His deity. His deity was fully there in His incarnation. That's why in His incarnation He is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation and the creator of the world and the... Origin of the world and the purpose of creation, the sustainer of the world, the head of the church, the firstborn from the dead. It's because he is God incarnate. Jesus Christ is fully God. Now, one of the primary ways in which the heretical teachers in Colossae were attacking Jesus is that they were trying to pull him down, trying to pull him down from full deity. Oh, they might say there was a spark of divinity in Jesus and perhaps maybe even higher than anybody else was Jesus, but they certainly didn't acknowledge His full divinity. Rather, they fell short of that. And I just say that if you ever come to believe that Jesus is something less than the fullness of deity dwelling in bodily form, you are going to believe that He isn't totally sufficient for you. You'll come to say that you need something else you will seek some other avenue of salvation to supplement your lack in Jesus, right? Because if Jesus is fully God, He's fully sufficient. But if He's less than God, He's maybe partially sufficient and you need something else to go on top of that. But Paul's argument here is that no, Jesus is fully God, fully sovereign, fully over everything, and therefore in Him, you are totally sufficient and totally complete. In fact, that's what it says in chapter 2, verse 10. In Him, you have been made complete. But in any time you take Jesus down, you're going to seek some other avenue. And that's what's happening at Colossae. The Gnostics were saying, you need to have some kind of extra special wisdom. Some made effort to obtaining physical perfection through severe treatment of the body. Well, Jesus did some, but you need to do the rest of it. Some turn their attention to the worship of angels and seeking of other experience as if the worship of Jesus isn't enough. And really, it's because of that. Because they didn't believe Jesus was fully God, that Jesus wasn't fully sufficient for them. And it all comes back to they didn't fully believe the truth about everything that Jesus was and what He did. But I say to you, beloved, this morning, church body, that Jesus has fully accomplished our salvation. If you are a believer in Christ today, Jesus has accomplished it all. It is done. It is a done work. You can't add to anything that Jesus did to make Him more glorious and excellent and exalted. And so likewise, you cannot add anything to His work to improve upon it in any way because you are complete in Him. Last week, my message was entitled, Who is Jesus? I sought to present Jesus in all His glory. This week, again, my title is in the form of a question. Is this. What has Jesus done? And last week, I sought to present His person. This week, I want to present His work in all of its fullness, of all of its glory. And that's the theme of verses 19 through 23. It is what Jesus did. And it comes down really to one word. It comes down to the word reconciliation. Bringing together two parties. You can see that there in verse 20. It's through Jesus... That God was pleased to reconcile all things to Himself. You see it also in verse 22. That believers in Christ, He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death. It's the main work of Jesus Christ. It's the work of reconciliation. Of bringing together that which was separated. And i just say that God loves to reconcile. I mean, that's the main point of verse 19. It's the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. Now, some translations just speak about how the, the, the fullness was pleased to dwell in Him, but fullness can't really please to dwell. But whose fullness? It's the fullness of deity that was pleased to dwell. It was God who was pleased to dwell in Jesus. And so the main focus, even of everything we're talking about here, is how happy and pleased God is to dwell in Jesus fully and to reconcile people unto Himself. When we're reconciled to God, it puts a smile on His face. God is not pleased with the death of the wicked, but He is pleased and He is delighted when we're reconciled to Him. I think about uh, one of the most famous stories in all of the Bible is the story of the prodigal son. And I want you just to think about how pleased the father was, even despite everything that was done against him. Right? You remember the story. A man had two sons. The youngest came to the father and said, Will you give me half of the inheritance? And amazingly, the father gave him half of the inheritance. Soon afterwards, he packed up his belongings, traveled off to a distant country where he squandered his inheritance with sinful living. And we spent everything. Had no money left. He was serving the swine, which for a Jew in that day would have been utterly despicable. He came to the end of himself. He said, My father's servants... Live better than I. Perhaps I can go back, confess my sin to my father and say, I'm not worthy to be your son. I just want to be a servant because I want to live because I'm hungry over here. And so he returned home. The father happened to see him coming from a long way off. I think it's because the father was looking for him. And when he saw him, he ran up to him and embraced him with love and affection and kissed him. His his son barely got the words out of confession. Father, I have sinned in your sight. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your servants. And the father would have none of that. He gave him the best robe. He gave him a ring. He gave him sandals. And then he called for a feast to celebrate the return of his lost son who was dead but began to live. And there are many lessons we can learn from this story, but I want you to look at the disposition of the father. When the son returned home, there was no hint of the father scolding him you wasted the inheritance in sinful living you stubborn slothful son you squandered half of everything I earned there was no sense of sorrow for his days of rebellion rather the father demonstrated to him nothing but love He clothed him with honor through a party for him and called all of his household, all of his servants. You almost get the sense that there were maybe a hundred people at the party, all of his employees, right? He owned a business, he was a farmer. And he said, Everybody here, come, celebrate, because my son, who was lost, is now returned home. When the older son complained, listen to what the father said. He said, We had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live, was lost and has been found. What a great picture it is of God's perspective when a sinner repents and trusts in Him. God is not a reluctant Savior. He doesn't receive repentant sinners out of a sense of duty. Okay, I guess the law says that. Come on. He rejoices in the salvation of others. It gives Him much joy and satisfaction and delight to reconcile. And that's what our text is talking about this morning, how the Father's good pleasure it was for all the fullness to dwell in Christ, which is talking about verses 18 and 19. And now, really the second point, which is everything, and to reconcile all things to Himself. God delights in the work that Jesus did. God delights in the reconciliation He accomplished. Well, Paul gives us two views of the reconciling work of Christ. First is in verses 19 and 20. I call it this work in general. It's the big picture of reconciliation. And verses 21 through 23 describe His work in particular, what He does in the life of those who believe and trust in His Son. So those are my two points, right? These two different views. First, we'll look big and then we'll look smaller. What has Jesus done? First point, He's reconciled all things. Look at verse 19 and 20 again. It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself. Having made peace through the blood of the cross, through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Well, we've looked at verse 19 already. I want to begin my comments on verse 20. It's one of the most difficult verses in the Bible to interpret. Because, look at what it says. It's an amazing scope. It says, It was the Father's good pleasure to reconcile all things to Himself. Does that stand a little bit odd? Maybe you know a little bit about the Scripture. I trust that you at Rock Valley Bible Church know much. Reconcile all things to Himself. There's some that take verse 20 as biblical proof for universalism. The belief that the Father will save everybody someday. That everybody will be reconciled to himself in the sense that they'll be enjoying his glory forever. And when you look at this verse, standing alone, you might say that. He's reconciled all things to himself, having made peace to the cross. And yet, clearly, by the analogy of Scripture, we know Scripture doesn't contradict itself. Jesus said Scripture can't be broken. And so you'd have to say, well... How does this verse match up with so many verses, particularly even the words of Jesus, that speak of people in eternal punishment and eternal torment? I mean, Jesus spoke many, many times of the outer darkness, how there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth for those who don't embrace Christ. Jesus spoke often of the eternal fire, where people will endure eternal punishment in a hot, agonizing flame. Paul speaks also of the wrath that comes upon the sons of disobedience. And so this verse can't mean that all someday will be in heaven. So how do you understand this verse? Well, there are really two options. One, you can take this word, all things, and say, well, maybe maybe this doesn't have the scope of, of everything. I mean, oftentimes in the Scripture, there are words all that can't mean everybody. The context, though, makes that clear, if that's the case. But in this circumstance, we can't do that. Because even in the context, all things have been mentioned five times in the previous context. And every time, it's talking about the totality of all the creation. Look back in verse 15. In verse 16, rather. By Him, all things were created. says, well, what things? Well, everything. in the heavens above, on the earth, whether it's visible or invisible, thrones, dominions, powers, rulers, authorities. Everything, says in verse 15, has been created through Him and for Him. I spoke last week about how all things... I mean, this is including everything in the world. And even verse 17. Jesus before all things, and in Him all things hold together. It's talking about all of creation. That what we see, that what we don't see, the visible world, the invisible, visible, invisible, the spiritual world, the human world, the the physical world, the trees, the dirt, everything. And even, also, at the end of verse verse 18. He Himself will come to have first place in everything. Just everything will put themselves under Jesus Christ. And so, you can't take verse 20 here and talk even about all things as limited in any scope. And even at the end of verse 20, Paul talks about whether things on earth or things in heaven. He's talking about things on earth that need to be reconciled to God and things in heaven that need to be reconciled to God. And it all will be the physical creation... The star, the moon, the plants, the planets, the flowers, the spiritual beings, holy angels, fallen angels, human beings. Everything that's ever been created is what He's talking about. So, to understand this verse, we can't limit at all things. I think the key to understanding this verse is understanding a little bit what this verse means when it talks about reconciling. In order to understand that, let's think about how is creation estranged from God? In the fall of man, did you know the entire creation underwent a curse, became estranged from God? I mean, remember when, when Adam sinned, how God cursed various people. Remember who was the first thing that uh, God cursed? Do you remember? Satan. Satan. And, and how did he curse Satan? By cursing what? A snake along the ground. Because of the sin of Adam, God cursed an animal. And He said, You know, you are, we will roll around on the belly, slither on the, the belly of wherever you are, right? And also Satan as well was cursed, right? There's always going to be enmity between your seed and her seed. Constant enmity. That's your curse, Satan. What else did He curse? Mothers. Great pain in childbearing, right? A desire to usurp the authority of your husband. What else did he curse? The ground he cursed, right? Thorns and thistles. And men was cursed as a result because we need to toil and labor in order to provide our families with the needed food. And because of Adam's sin, all things have come under the curse of the Almighty God. The creation is not how God created it. Sin has damaged it. You know, how easy is it for us to think that the only people affected by the the fall are just people? Right? I mean, how easy is it to think about, oh, Adam's sin, it just came upon us. But Adam's sin, you need to realize, has a total impact upon all of creation. It's felt in the angelic and demonic world. It's felt among the animal kingdom. As in many ways, Darwin got it somewhat right. It is survival of the fittest. There's no mercy in the animal kingdom. The ground shows forth evidence of the fall. See thorns and thistles and weeds. You go outside in your garden and you see the evidence of the curse. Everyone who's ever lived has felt it. Wars and conflicts and troubles have always been constant, whether on the macro scale with nations or whether on the micro scale. Oftentimes families have difficulties in getting along. Throughout the entire history of the world, not a single generation has known freedom from the curse of God come because of the result of Adam's sin. In Romans 8, listen to how Paul speaks about how the sin of Adam affected the entire creation. Paul said this, "...the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption." into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth until now. And though the earth is under a curse now, there's a day where the creation will be set free from its slavery to corruption. says so that creation is, is eagerly anticipating the revealing of the sons of God. I mean you get a picture there that it's almost like the, the trees and the rivers and the hills are, are are like looking to God and anticipating the day when he would come and set everything right. Does that sound strange to you? Listen to Psalm 98. Let the sea roar and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the river clap their hands, let the mountains sing together for joy before the Lord, for He's coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. We see seas and rivers and mountains rejoicing when the Lord comes to set the created world in order. We don't think about this too often, right? But really, the creation is groaning and eagerly longing for God to come back and reconcile the world, even the physical things, back to Himself. That's how great the fall was. It affected all of creation. And all of creation needs reconciliation. At Christmas time, we sing the carol, right? Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her King. Let every heart prepare a room and heaven and nature sing. Even nature singing is what Isaac Watts talked about. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. You wonder, why is it that Isaac Watts sounds so much like Psalm 98? It's because joy to the world is talking about the second coming. It's talking about the time when Christ would come and rule over all things and reconcile the earth to himself and make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. The curse has extended from people to plants. From angels to animals, from demons to deserts, and it's Jesus Christ who will finally reconcile all of that to Himself. There will be a day when God brings the world in full subjection under His feet. And when He does, He'll reverse the curse. I mean, think about the the prophecies of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 2 verse 4 says, Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. When God comes back, there will be peace. There will be reconciliation. The wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the young goat. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. He's talking about even among the animal kingdom. Just right there. There is reconciliation. There is peace established. God will be friends with all of His creation once again as He created the earth to be. And yet you think about Well, what about... The demons, you know, who are thrown into the eternal fire, cast away, right? Prepared before the foundation of the world for them. What about those in hell? Will they be reconciled to God? Well, I think they'll be reconciled to God in this sense that God will finally pour out His wrath upon them, and um, they are bearing their punishment. It's fully established. You think about someone going into court of a court of law today, and uh, you know they've done some great crime, and uh, they are called by the judge guilty and sentenced to pay whatever, life in prison, or four years in prison, or whatever they have to pay. It's at that point that they are reconciled with the law because they're bearing their punishment of what it is that they deserve. And I think the way to understand Colossians 1.20 is in that sense of reconciliation that God has established everything in peace. And there it is. Those who have, have sinned and transgressed against Him, unrepentant, he is paying, they are paying for their own sin. Those who have trusted in Christ, Christ paid for their sin and they get to see the glory. Every sin at that point will be punished. The world will be reconciled to Him. I think that's the best that I can do to explain verse 20. But I simply say this, that in recent weeks I've been speaking to you about how sufficient and how glorious and magnificent the cross of Christ is. And I gave you the illustration, I remember a couple of weeks ago, of seeing the cross in the... In the far distant, right? You come to faith in Jesus and the cross is way out there and it's kind of small. You don't see it, but as you walk towards it, it gets bigger and bigger. And I hope maybe even today you might see how big the cross was because Jesus upon the cross was dying even more than just for the sins of men. He was dying to reconcile the earth to Himself because look what it says there. Having made peace through the blood of the cross. In reversing the curse, it was through the cross. God just didn't remake it. It, was have, it had to be through the cross that that was done as He reconciled all things to Himself. Again, these things are anticipating a future reconciliation. But that's what God has done. That's what the work of Jesus did. It reconciled all things. That's like the big picture. Now let's look at the smaller picture. He reconciled believers. Verses 21 through 23. This is a bit more familiar territory to us. The Bible speaks more about this than it does the former point. He says this in 21-23, through "...although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. In these verses, Paul reminded those in Colossae just what they were like before Epaphras came to them. Three things he signals out to them. He says that they were alienated from God, right an estrangement there. They were hostile in mind towards God. They were engaged in evil deeds. The idea here is one of a non-existent, non-desired relationship. God was in one corner, The Colossians were in the other corner, and all they wanted to do was put on their boxing gloves and fight it out with God. They were stranded on a deserted island, and they didn't seek help. I mean, you've all seen those cartoon pictures, right, of the little island and the the palm tree and the sand, and the person on the island desperately needs help, right? You've seen that, right? Surely you have. The picture of the Colossians is this guy in a desperate situation, and and when the time came and a ship was spotted, they looked really closely and saw the enemy flag flying. And rather than firing off the flare that could save them to signal a ship, they saw it was an enemy ship and instead cursed the enemy. would rather die than to be rescued by the enemy. That was their perspective. They're absolutely opposed to one attempting to help them. Like a dog who breaks its leg and snarls and barks at the owner who tries to come near to help so also were the Colossians. And that's what the Colossians were like before Epaphras came and brought to them the gospel of the grace of God. And they finally bowed their wills to Him. Now, lest you think there's no application for us at all, because Paul is talking to the Colossians, know that it comes almost directly to us as well. Every single one of us present this morning have been in this situation. It's a situation of anyone who ever lived. When Adam sinned, and plunged humanity and the world into the depths of despair, sin was still there. The Lord banished Adam and Eve from the garden and we went with them in many ways from the presence of the Lord. And subsequent generations proved that being cast out of the garden was by mutual agreement. Things were so bad in the early history of the world that God looked down upon the sons of man. And do you know what He saw? I know you know what He saw. What did he see? Every thought and intention of the heart. He's drawing a blank, but I remember Genesis 6, 5. Every thought and intention of the heart was only evil continually. Every thought, not just the thought, every intention of the thought was not just evil sometimes, it was only evil, not only evil so only evil continually. The depths of the wickedness of man. So why God destroyed the world in a flood is because men were so wicked and hostile towards God. The flood didn't change the human heart, though we're still desperately wicked today. We are still apart from Christ, alienated from God, hostile in mind, and engaged in evil deeds. Then the good news comes in verse 22. Have you ever had someone come up and ask you, okay, I've got good news and bad news. Which do you want to hear first? You know what Paul would say? Tell me the bad news. Because the good news is going to look good in light of the bad news. That's what He always does in Scripture so often. He tells us the bad news first, and then the good news comes and looks so much better. Here's the good news. Yet, though we were engaged in these evil deeds, He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. You can see the contrast here with the first word, yet. talks about the, the bad news of verse 21. Though we were estranged from God, yet God reconciled us to Himself. And listen, it was at great cost. It took the death of His Son is what verse 22 speaks about there. He's reconciled you in His fleshly body. Maybe you remember the Shakespeare play, um, Romeo and Juliet. You Remember that play? The Lord Montague... And Lord Capulet had, a, had an argument, a long-standing feud with each other. And as a result, all of the, the families of the Montagues and the families of the Capulets had much conflict and strife and tension among them. They were estranged. And then, the amazing thing happened. Romeo, a Montague, fell in love with Juliet, a Capulet. And they tried to make this love thing work and tried to, you know... Get around these feuding families, but try as they might, they met and were experienced by great difficulties at every turn. And and then the story unfolds with a a complex turn of events that ends with Romeo and Juliet both dead. But did you know that through the death of the two children, the feuding families are reconciled to each other? It took a death to reconcile the Capulets and the Montagues. And so also with us before God, it it took a death to reconcile us to God. Now, the death of the Capulets and the Montagues isn't like the death of Christ at all. I mean, In that, it was kind of like a wake-up call to say how foolish you've been the whole time. The death of Christ was far different from that. The death of Christ was substitute. He dying for our sins, the wrath that our sins deserved. And yet still the point is there, is it took a death to reconcile us to God. Verse 22, you've been reconciled in His fleshly body through death. So what has Jesus done? He's reconciled you. And He's done it with a purpose. In order that, verse 22, to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Right? And this really is the fullness of the good news. It's not merely that we've been reconciled to God as good news. That is good news. But the good news is ultimately future that we will be able to stand before God Our sin wiped away, cleared of all of our guilt, because we need to have our sin wiped away and our guilt cleared if we're going to stand before an infinitely holy God who dwells in unapproachable light. And did you know that it's only the death of Christ that can make us holy without sin and stain? It's only the death of Christ that can make us blameless without any guilt at all. It's only the death of Christ that can make us beyond reproach without any accusation to be held against us. And there'll be a day when each and every single one of us will stand before the Supreme Court of the universe with God Himself presiding as the Judge. And if you believe in the work of Christ, you have no need to fear that day. Oh, the gravity of the moment may cause your heart to flutter. And adrenaline may be pumping in your bones. Spiritual bodies have bones. I'm not sure about that. And there will be a, a reverence and awe at the majesty of God but the expectation of condemnation is gone. It's not there. Not because you're not guilty of transgressing the Lord on high. Because you know full well the Lord has pricked your heart that you're alienated from God apart from Christ and hostile in mind and engaged in evil deeds. But the glorious truth of the Gospel is this, is that His death makes us holy and blameless and beyond reproach before Him. But there is a condition standing before God in such a manner. And the condition is faith. And it's talked about here in verse 23. It says, You'll stand holy and blameless before Him. You will be reconciled if you continue in the faith firmly established. But you know, it's, it's very interesting here what it's talking about. is It's not talking about you will be if. It's talking about you have been if, in other words, you have been reconciled in order to stand blameless, if you continue in your faith. I'm talking about a kind of faith, a, a faith that continues to persevere and continues to grow. Because that's true faith. True faith is firm faith, it is steadied faith, it is steadfast faith. But look what the Colossians needed to do they needed to continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast. They need to continue their hope that they'd heard from Epaphras. A, a hope that in Christ alone is how they'll stand before God. Notice they weren't told to stand firm in their works. They weren't told to stand firm in their righteous acts. They weren't told to stand firm in their efforts to pray. Their standing firm before God is a matter of faith, right? Romans 1.17 says it. The righteous will live by faith. Now, think about the temptations that came upon those in Colossae. There are some there who are telling them the key to Christianity is to pursue this super-spiritual knowledge. Or the key to Christianity is to follow after the traditions of men that we've followed for generations. Or the key to Christianity is to obey the legal requirements of the Old Testament sacrificial system. Or the key to Christianity is is that you need to worship angels or to seek visions. Or the key to Christianity is keeping away from certain things or abstaining from certain foods. Or the key to Christianity is beating your body in submission unto your will. And Paul is saying, no, no, no. Those things aren't the things you need to stand firm in. You need to stand firm in your faith. And believing in Jesus Christ alone, to be justified by faith in Him alone, is our only hope. Knowledge or traditions or obedience or angelic worship or visions or abstinence or diligence. Listen, none of these things will stand us before God in that ultimate day. Now, think about the character of all these things I've spoken about. You realize that most of them were religious things. I mean, the Colossians weren't, for the most part, being pulled away to idolatry and sensual sin and greed and licentiousness. And wickedness—they—they they weren't being tempted by those things primarily. The—the the false teachers were coming upon them and saying, "Oh, you're religious because you believe in Jesus, but you know what? Here, you need to add these things, and they're religious things. I mean, they're saying you need to seek a higher life, right? You're—you're—you're you're, you're okay in Christ, but you need to seek a higher life, or you need to keep the—the the ceremonies of God." I mean, Christ is good, but you need to do this in order to be really super spiritual. You need to keep away from the things of the world because they defile you. Don't, don't taste those. Don't touch them to really live the Christian life. You need to discipline your body. Have strong self-discipline. Or you need to have a worship experience. Yeah, that's what you need. And in so doing, listen, they're being pulled away from faith in Christ. Pulling away by religious things that would make them seem and appear to be more spiritual than they were by faith in Christ. But the biblical gospel is this we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing. There's nothing that you need to do to be righteous before God, other than believe in His Son who can cleanse you and make you holy that final day. That's it. And they're being pulled away. Oh, certainly there'll be times where standing firm is easy for us. Right? But there are times where it's difficult. My wife and I went on a bike ride yesterday. Um, The Christiansons came over, babysit our kids, wonderfully served us and said, just get out of the house. We said, okay. And we took our bikes and um, we rode probably about 15 miles. We did Rockford. And... um, on our way out it was pretty fun we, we rode up the Perryville path we rode north on Perryville and I'm not sure if you remember last night there were some storms outside you remember that we, we just we went out in the evening kind of missed that but there was a strong southerly wind about 15 miles an hour I'm guessing blowing us and you know we rode almost all the way up to Riverside on our bikes and my heart never pounded once I mean never really pained in my chest my legs didn't hurt at all and then we had a dinner uh, at a restaurant up there saw Phil Gusky's son at dinner and Dr. Luke. We saw them and that was kind of interesting. Then we turned around and started going home and went, oh, And we got the wind just smack in our face. And I think between, you can check me from, I think between State and Riverside, it's like all downhill. Because back, it seemed like it was all uphill as we went against the wind. And my heart was pounding and my legs were burning. Well, that's like what it is and sometimes with um, standing firm in our faith. There are times where it's going to be easy, right? When you're surrounded by good influences, you're hearing the right things, you just coast all the way to Riverside. But there are some times where it's difficult, right? A wind of doctrine comes and floats around the church that seeks to settle you from your faith in Christ alone. That's when you need to stay firm, keep pedaling. Some new theory comes out that sounds reasonable and begins to capture your attention. That's when you need to stand firm. Some type of special religious experience is held up. It's necessary. That's when you need to stand firm. No, it's faith alone in Christ alone. Someone begins to elevate some ceremony as the key to living the fulfilled Christian life. In those times, you need to stand firm on the Gospel is what it says here in verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, here it is, not moved away from the hope of the Gospel. What's the hope of the Gospel? Belief in Christ, makes you righteous and holy before God. That's it. And there are these religious temptations to come away. So when the wind of doctrine comes, don't be moved. Stand firm on your hope of Christ. When the perspective comes, refuse to believe it because you've believed the, the tried and true gospel, which is good enough for you. When others say you need to have some special experience, say, I'm satisfied already in Christ. I know, Colossians 2, verse 10, that I'm complete in Him. When some ceremony is exalted, say, listen, Christ and believing in Him, exalt that so high above that that the ceremony pales in insignificance. You know, J.C. Ryle said it far better than I ever could. He said this, If you love life, cling with a fast hold to the doctrine of justification by faith. If you love inward peace, And who of us don't love inward peace? If you love inward peace, let your views of faith be very simple. Just believe, right? He says, honor every part of the Christian religion. Contend to the death for the necessity of holiness, which outwith no one will see the Lord. But he says, use diligently and reverently every appointed means of grace. But do not give to these things the office of justifying your soul in the slightest degree. If you would have peace and keep peace, remember that faith alone justifies. And that not as a meritorious work, but it's the act that joins the soul to Christ. Church family, just believe in faith towards Christ. So anything that reconciles, you, start adding other things to that and you're being pulled away because that's what the Colossians, adding other spiritual religious things it's when they're being pulled away. Well, I wouldn't be faithful this text without one last word of warning. And This warning, word of warning comes to those of you who don't have faith in Christ. It comes in verse 23. Verse 23 really is somewhat of a warning, somewhat of a definition. Think about the flow of 21, 22, and 23. It says this, You are enemies with God, but God has reconciled you if you continue in the faith He's not talking about losing your salvation as if not believing you lose your salvation. He's saying this, is that you were enemies, but He reconciled if you continue in your faith. Continuing faith is real faith. If you don't have continuing faith, you don't have faith. Does that make sense? I mean, saving faith is enduring faith. Saving faith is firmly established faith. Saving faith is steadfast faith. Verse 23, you can kind of see it as a warning. You can almost see it as a definition. Those who have been reconciled are those who continue in the faith. Any other kind of faith? The non-continuing faith is an imposter. You know, there is a wind of doctrine that goes around the Christian community today. The doctrine says that faith is simply agreeing to some facts about Jesus. Maybe doing something in response to that. That's raising a hand or walking an aisle or praying some prayer. But this wind of doctrine says, once you say, yes, I believe, you're fine. And it fails to understand that enduring faith is real faith. Faith just makes a decision. Well, that may be enduring faith, real faith. That may not be enduring faith. But Paul said this, when you endure in your faith, you'll be fine. Not just if you make a decision, you'll be fine. Because enduring faith is real faith. It's the only type of faith that reconciles us to God. And so I simply ask you, do you have enduring faith? It's the faith that stands simply in the blood of Christ. Because that's the faith that justifies. And you know it. That's the faith that will present us holy, And that is the faith, by the way, that changes us and transforms us and causes us to pursue God and love Him at the greatest degree. There are many people who who think that uh, if you preach a gospel that says salvation by grace alone through faith alone, boy, people are going to live any way they want. You know what? Experience is contrary. When you believe solely in Christ alone, that motivates all of your good works, all of your religion. Everything comes as a result of that. Not meritorious, not adding anything, because you can't add anything. Without gratitude and love and trust and obedience and desire. So again I ask, do you have enduring faith? It's the only faith that's real. And if you don't have it, you cannot expect to see the blessing of verse 22. You can't expect to come before Him, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. You can only expect to see what a, an alienated life and a hostile mind and a life engaged in evil deeds will get. And that's not profitable. That's not good. You want to have enduring faith. That trust. I've laid before you life and death this morning. And I'm going to pray even now that you would have enduring faith. Let's pray. Lord, I would pray for this body of believers. I think about how many things have been said from this pulpit and will be said in years to come. And I pray, God, that You would, God, so use these words, God, to cause us to see the glories of Christ, cause us to see His sufficiency, and trust and rest in Him alone. Period. Plus nothing. God, that that would be our hope, where our hope is, and that would be where our security is. And God, I even pray for now, right now, those who don't believe those who don't have an enduring faith, those who think that they need to add some ritual to save themselves, or, Lord forbid, those who think they don't need Christ to be saved, or those who are still hostile to you and don't want anything to do for you, I pray, God, the power of your Holy Spirit, you'd come in and break the darkness. Satan has blinded eyes. I pray that you would open those eyes to see the light, the gospel of the glory of Christ, God, who alone can reconcile us before You. I thank You, Lord, that You are a happy God who is pleased to do the work of reconciliation. I pray that You would expand our scope of everything that needs to be reconciled to You. God, that ultimately the whole universe would bow its knee to You and express its praise to You as the Sovereign One who deserves all worship and praise and honor and glory. Move among us, God, for those of us who believe, stir our hearts again to see Christ in greater ways. For those who don't, I pray you'd convict them of sin, righteousness, and the judgment to come. That's what the Spirit does. And so, God, I pray you would come and do that. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We will sing one last song.